This week I was sitting on Victory Memorial Boulevard because there's just lots of green space. And I was watching the wind blow the pollen across the field and rustling the leaves. I was listening to birds chirping in the trees, landing on the ground, looking for tasty morsels to eat. There was spider webs strung between grass blades. It was just beautiful nature. And there were people walking their dogs by and cars driving by. And I was struck by the fact that in this immense complexity of everything that was happening around me, that God understood every single detail all the way down to even the subatomic level, to things that go far beyond my comprehension. And I was struck by the fact that not only did he know everything that was happening that I could see, he knew everything that was happening in the neighborhood, and in the city, and in the county, and in the state, and in the region, and in our country, and on our continent, and on our planet, and in our solar system, in the entire Milky Way, in our entire galaxy group, all the way to the endless bounds of the universe. I was struck by the immensity of it all, and I was struck by the immensity of a God that understands it all and created it all. My favorite band is As Cities Burn, and I like their music, and I like the, un- the authenticity and the thoughtfulness of their lyrics and the wrestling with their faith. One of their songs, Clouds, has this line. Is your God really God? Is my God really God? I think our God isn't God if he fits inside our head. I think our God isn't God if he fits inside our head. And that's what I was thinking about as I sat there. I was like, my God is so much bigger than I can understand. Because how could he? How could a God that created all of it, understands it, holds it all together, how could he fit inside our head? Last week, Jeremy unpacked the deep theological topic of the Trinity. And I encourage you to go back and listen to his sermon. But right now for us, I'm just going to summarize uh, just that part of the sermon. And I'm going to add a, a couple helpful comments that will bring us into our passage today. So the theology of the Trinity is that there is one God, and God is three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but he is one God. No human fully understands the Trinity, and that might be discouraging or make you skeptical of God's existence. But if a God created everything we see and can't see, how could we fully understand him? And would you even want a God as simple as us? to be the creator of everything. I encourage you to go back and listen to Jeremy's sermon from last week if you're interested in diving more into that topic. But it's important for us because Jesus mentions many times his relationship with the Father in this passage. And before we dive into the passage and into its uh, complexity yet simplicity at the same time, uh, let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God beyond our understanding, that your ways are higher than our ways. I thank you that you have revealed yourself first 
through scripture, through your written word, and then through Jesus Christ himself, God become man and dwelling among people. I thank you that we have witnesses, that we have testimony to Jesus. We have witnesses to your goodness and to your glory. Help us to understand and help us to believe in your name. Amen. Our first section, verses 30 through 32, is titled The Authority of Jesus. We're first looking at the authority of Jesus. Here in this first section, we'll see two truths that will be unpacked in the rest of our sections. And the first is that Jesus' authority comes from God. Jesus makes it clear here that his authority does not come from humanity. He doesn't seek the will of humans. He seeks the will of God. He doesn't need human approval in order to gain or maintain his authority. You know, like I said, God can't fit inside our head because of his complexity, but many of Jesus' listeners rejected him, not because of the complexity, but because he didn't fit inside their religious views. It was because they had built their hope upon something else. He says here that he seeks the will of the Father, but we'll see in verse 44, that they prioritize receiving glory from each other instead of from God. And that's the crux of the issue. That's the crux of our passage. Jesus' listeners doubt who he is because he doesn't fit into their faulty framework of God and themselves, a framework built on wrong assumptions driven by their pride. But he's going to address that doubt by showing them his witnesses, And by the end, he's going to show how the foundations of their view of God in themselves is completely misguided. And then he will provide hope uh, and assurance. In verse 31, Jesus says that if he's the only witness to himself, then his testimony is untrue. And this is a statement I think we can all agree with. If you make a claim about yourself and everyone else disagrees with it, you can't just expect them to believe it, right? Like you need other people to corroborate your statement. And this is even factored into the Old Testament law where it requires two or three witnesses. And that leads us to the second truth of our section. The first is that his authority is from God. And the second truth is that Jesus can back up this claim because he has witnesses. In verse 32, where he says he has a witness, it might seem like at first he's talking about John the Baptist, because he's about to talk about John the Baptist. But if we step back a little bit, we can see that he's actually talking about someone else. And it's the person that he's been talking about this whole time, and that's the Father, God the Father. In the, the previous passage that Jeremy preached on last week, Jesus was talking about the Father, and now he says that he has a witness And then he spends a little bit of time talking about John the Baptist, but now then he's going to say that he has a witness greater than John the Baptist, and that witness is the Father. So this whole section is talking about the Father as his witness with a kind of short short subsection of talking about how the Father uses John the Baptist as a way to witness to Jesus. And this is important because it's again connected to how Jesus seeks out the will of the Father and not humans. Which brings us to our next section, the first witness. 
That is the gospel witness of leaders. In verse 33, he says that the religious leaders asked John the Baptist what he was about. I mean, how could you not? You have this like seemingly crazy guy out in the wilderness that's like, you know, eating locusts and dressed in rags and preaching and baptizing people and everyone's going out there to see what he's about. And so the religious leaders, out of curiosity and due diligence, they send a delegation to John to see who he was. They ask him who he is. And we saw this in the first chapter of John. And what was John the Baptist's response? He testified that there is someone who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Then the very next day, he sees Jesus and proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He understood his mission and he proclaimed it. Yet in verse 31, and again in 33, Jesus states that he knows who he himself is because of the testimony of the Father. His identity and claim are secure in the Father. You know, when he walked up and he heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wasn't like, really? He's here? Who is it? Is it, is it that guy? It's me? Really? That, that wasn't his reaction. He already knew. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus that he was the Lamb of God. And he knew this because of his connection to the Father, because of this incomprehensible interlinking between the Godhead, because he and the Father are not separate gods, but one God. So why did God send John the Baptist, if not for Jesus? Well, it says it right in the verse that it's for the sake of people. God sent John so that people would see the ministry of John, hear his proclamations about Jesus, and then believe and follow him. We actually saw that happen with a couple of Jesus' disciples. So right after John proclaims, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a few of John's disciples hear that, and they say, oh, this is the guy. This is the guy you've been talking about the whole time. I'm going to go and become his disciple now. And so that happens. A few of John's disciples become disciples of Jesus. And that was John carrying out his purpose. And that is the role of spiritual leaders in general. It's to bear witness to Jesus. Our very own Dee Dee Holmes was officially and legally adopted by her parents, Matthew and Lydia, this week. Woo! <laughs> it's an incredible moment. And at every adoption, in the courtroom, there are employees of the state that testify before the judge that the adopting parents are the best situation for the child. And if a social worker you know, provides a moving emotional testimony, like what happened at Dee Dee's adoption, you know, it stirs up joy in the listeners because they're testifying to the goodness of what's happening. They're testifying to the importance of this adoption. Their words are pointing to the family and declaring, this is so amazing. But what many people of Jesus' uh, day who heard John did, however, is they, make the, they made the witness the main focus. You know, it would go beyond someone saying, you know, forget about the adoption. Let's hear more about this person. I like this witness. 
You know, it goes all the way to someone not even realizing that an adoption is taking place and saying like, wow, this person's a really good public speaker. I, you know, I'm glad I came here today to hear their lecture. You know, the, no, the witness isn't the main focus. They're not even the purpose. They're a testimony to something greater that's happening. John was a burning and shining lamp. His ministry was ignited by God. He received his power from above, and he shined so that something else might be lit up, not so that people would stare at the lamp. Yet they focused on him. They thought he was interesting and exciting. They rejoiced that God sent them a prophet for their time, but they didn't listen to what he said. They completely missed his actual message. The Jews rejoiced in the testimony of John the Baptist, he says, for only a little while. So it's possible that at this point, John the Baptist is already in prison or maybe he's dead. But regardless of it, now that he's no longer testifying, you know, they just, they completely missed his whole message. For if they believed it, they would have re rejoiced in his testimony, then rejoiced even more greatly in Christ, who is the fulfillment of his message. You know, if this happened with a leader specifically anointed to prepare the way for Jesus, how much more can it happen with any other spiritual leader today? We can distort and miss the message of honest, true leaders, and we can seek out leaders that merely tell us what we want to hear. You know, we focus too much on the person, lifting them up, instead of looking to who they should be bearing witness to, which is Christ. Our next section, which is just verse 36, is the gospel witness of Jesus' works. So first, we heard the authority of Jesus. And then I realized I didn't give you verses for our other sections. We had verses 30 through 32 as the authority of Jesus. I heard someone click their pen. Someone was taking notes. So this is for you. Verses 33 through 35 was the gospel witness of leaders. And now, verse 36, we are going to look at the gospel witness of Jesus' works. So even though our previous section was about a person... And this section is about Jesus' actions. Their meanings are actually surprisingly similar. Jesus' listeners misunderstood John the Baptist and his purpose. They elevated him above what he was giving testimony to. And in the same way, many people misunderstood Jesus' works, especially his miracles of healing, elevating it above what they pointed to. God's miracles of healing still to this day are given a more central role than he intended. They are not an end in themselves. Yes, God did and does and will heal people, but that should not be the primary focus of the Christian. We have a greater hope than this. Healing is a blessing, but its primary purpose is to bear witness to Christ. Jesus physically healing people served as a testimony to his ability to heal people spiritually and appointed to how he can bring spiritual wellness. This is an incredibly important point to remember. And when we're praying for physical healing, ultimately the end goal is God's glory. 
and baked in with God's glory is this promise from Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, Paul didn't just write this because he wanted us to have some nice word art on our wall or something, you know, that we could just quick write in a card without really thinking about it. No, this promise that God will work out everything for our good, it's not some throwaway feel-good sentence. It's in the context of Paul talking about deep suffering, how all creation has been groaning in the pain of childbirth, how we deeply long to be adopted by God, how we are so weak, we need the Spirit of God to help us and intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. That's the context of this promise. And so when we're in a place where it feels like things couldn't get any worse, we cannot put our hope in our circumstances improving. Rather, we must look to the reality that God is working things for our good and his glory even when we can't understand. The blessings that God bestows upon us, including when he provides healing or that job we really want, or when he provides a family or whatever it is, It's to bear witness to who he is. When we experience good gifts, we see how God is a good father. And Christ's works given to him by the Father bear witness even today to the reality that Christ was sent by God and that Christ is God and that our hope should be in him, not in things of this world. Our next section verses 37 and 38, is the gospel witness of the Father. Jesus has moved from the indirect now to the direct. First, he brought up John the Baptist, a man sent by God to bear witness to him. Then he mentions his works given to him by the Father, and now he directly talks about the Father. Although Christ was born as a man here on earth, His identity is secure because while fully man, he is also fully God. His eternal interconnectedness with the rest of the Trinity is part of who he is. Yet while he knows the Father bears witness to him, his audience doesn't know that because they've never heard God. They've never seen God, nor do they have God's word abiding in them. In the Old Testament, A number of people heard the voice of God. The most prominent person, who is also later referenced in this passage, is Moses. He literally heard the word of God, the voice of God. He was given the law uh, for God's people to follow. However, the Jews Jesus is talking to have never heard God, despite the fact that he's literally talking to them. They've also never seen God, Unlike Jacob, who wrestled with him, despite the fact that Jesus is standing right in front of them. Nor do they have God's word abiding in them, unlike the psalmist. You know, Jesus' listeners, they were deeply invested in the scriptures. But they were separated from the experience of it, despite the fact that the fulfillment of the scriptures stands before them. All of the people who heard, saw, and abided in God did not do so because of their intrinsic greatness, but because God chose them. Look at Jacob, for example. 
when he saw God, he didn't know who it was. You know, he, he had this lack of knowledge about who he was interacting with. And then he wrestled with God. He didn't know who it was, and then he started fighting with him. He fought God. Jesus isn't saying that his listeners are dumb or they're not religious enough. Rather, it's that they don't believe in the one whom God sent. That's the reason. Because they don't believe in the one whom God sent, they're unable to connect with him and abide in his word. And this belief is not built upon their goodness or their ability to stir up belief within themselves. Even, you know, if like Jacob, we are wrestling with God, struggling with an aspect of theology, or wondering why something has happened in our lives or the world around us, we can abide in him. Because our faith is not built upon a foundation of our ability to be all-knowing or unshakable. Rather, our faith is built upon the solid rock of God himself. And as we believe, God will testify to us about who Jesus is. Belief in Jesus you know, is a prerequisite for abiding in God's word and experiencing the transformation he can bring. As God works in our life after we believe, sanctifying us, making us more like him, we'll see the self-authenticating nature of belief in Jesus. That belief allows us to abide in God's word, which in turn allows us to grow in belief. This brings us to our final section, verses 39 through 47, which is the gospel witness of the word. Here in verse 39, Jesus explains why they don't believe in the one that God sent. Right? They haven't seen or heard or abided in his, in his word because they don't believe in the one that God sent. And now we're going to see why they don't believe in the one that God sent. We're going to see their core problem. Listen to verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The religious leaders of the day diligently studied the scriptures. They poured over them their whole lives, memorizing, analyzing, writing, teaching, and discussing the scriptures. Yet they missed the whole point. Imagine with me, a man named Carl. Now, this isn't any sort of commentary on people named Carl. This is just, I, I chose a name because I had to choose a name. So um, I apologize to, to anyone that, you know, might be hurt by my words. So one day, Carl makes a new friend. And, he invite, and that new friend invites him over for dinner. And after dinner, the owner says, you know, hey, Carl, I got to show you something that I think is pretty cool. So he brings Carl to his cellar, and Carl's eyes just light up. Because in this cellar are shelves upon shelves, just as far as the eye can see, it seems like, filled with cheese wheels. These beautiful, yellow, round, cylindrical, beautiful cheese wheels. And Carl just can't believe it. This is the most amazing thing he's ever seen. And so he starts asking the owner as many questions as he can think about cheese and how to properly store it. And just, it just goes all the way deep into the night. And Carl goes 
home early in the morning and he just, even though he was awake for so long, he just can't fall asleep because he's thinking about cheese. And he starts, you know, building his own cellar and he buys shelves that are just the right, just the perfect size. And he buys the most expensive sensors and systems to have the right temperature and humidity levels in his cheese cellar to store his cheese to perfection. And he travels the world finding the the greatest cheeses that humanity has ever made. And he dedicates his life to his cheese wheel collection. And anyone that comes over, any guest he has or any person he meets, he can't help but talk about his cheese collection and how he believes that he must be you know, the foremost expert on cheese because of his obsession with it. And one day, you know, after decades of his cheese collecting, he has a a guest over, he has a friend over, and he's giving his guest the grand tour of his cheese cellar, displaying his immense knowledge on the cheeses, bragging about, you know, the different wheels that he has found. And while showing his guest his favorite wheel, his guest asks, like, you know, oh, I don't think I've had that type of cheese before. What does it taste like? And Carl's like, you know, what do you mean, what does it taste like? And they say, you know, like, well, I, I know that you haven't eaten that specific wheel. I know you don't, you know, open up your wheels and eat them because they're so important to you. But, like, what does that type of cheese taste like? And Carl's just, like, gives a chuckle. And he's like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. What does your car taste like? And they're like, well, I don't know, but my car isn't a food. Carl says, well, cheese isn't a food either. And they say, well, yeah, I mean, I know that you store your collection, you don't eat it, but, like, cheese is a food. And Carl's like, no, it's not. You know, with cheese, you just keep it and you store it and you look at it. It's like art. And going back and forth on and on and on, Carl's guest realizes that despite dedicating his life to cheese and knowing so much about it, he doesn't actually know that it's a food. He completely missed that somewhere along the the line. He's never tasted it. He's never experienced it. Jesus' listeners, the religious leaders, they didn't miss the meaning of Scripture because it contained some secret, hidden knowledge in it. Quite the contrary. You know, they were so diligent about studying it And they tried as hard as they could to unlock secret knowledge from Scripture, analyzing what words were at the very middle of the the different books, connecting passages based on which letter of the alphabet they started with. Yet they missed the whole point, that all of it was pointing at, all of it was pointing to Christ. They were experts in facts about Scripture, but not its meaning or purpose. They believed that by following the law, by following the rules God laid out for his people, they would be saved. They believed that when God gave Moses the law, they just had to be good citizens of heaven. They just had to be good citizens of God's kingdom, you know, be a good rule follower, and then they would be saved. And this makes sense from a human perspective. We exalt those who do good and look down on those who do bad. That's just human tendency. That's human nature. And In verse 44, it says that they sought the glory of people rather than the glory of God, and that prevented them from believing. They were stuck in their mindset, analyzing Scripture from a human perspective, believing it's all about 
doing good. It's all about following the law. But they were missing what was there all along, that it's by God's grace they are saved. Yes, he expects them to follow his commands. But some of the commands, the commands to, to sacrifice, directly pointed to the reality that they needed to be saved by God, not by works. And they misunderstood the promises of the Messiah. They were so focused on human glory, they believed that their main need to be saved by God was political rather than spiritual. They thought that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans, restoring their physical kingdom. So when the Messiah comes and is preaching of their deep need for God spiritually and focusing on the heavenly kingdom rather than earthly kingdoms, they reject him. Jesus stands in stark contrast to their focus on human glory. In verse 41, he says that he does not receive glory from people. He didn't come to the earth as a people pleaser. And they didn't know how to react to this. So they rejected him. Because of their self-centered glory-seeking, they didn't have the love of God in their hearts. They didn't see him or hear him or abide in him. They were scouring scripture for life, dedicating to their life to becoming experts on it. But they're missing that God is the source of life. Instead, they believed that they are their source of spiritual life. So when Jesus arrives and says that all of Scripture is pointing to him, that he is the source of life, that they need him to be saved, they reject him. Out of their pride, they refuse to come to him. Instead, they point to the law and say that it'll save them instead. But the great irony is that the law, which they've positioned as their Savior, actually condemns them. Many first century Jews believed that Moses was standing before God interceding for them. That as a great hero of the faith on earth, and someone that had directly communicated with God on earth, now that he was with God in heaven, he was listening to their prayers and bringing them before God, interceding for them. However, in verse 45, Jesus says this, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. For there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They have set their hope in Moses. They've set their hope in in the law. They've set their hope in right standing before God through the law, and yet that very law condemns them. They can't follow it. No one can. And not only do they fail to follow the law, Jesus here is saying that they don't even believe it because they don't believe in its true meaning. It is not their Savior. It's a witness to Jesus. I don't know a lot about gymnastics. But what I do know is that when a gymnast does the vault, where they sprint towards that little table, which is called the vault, you know, they, they sprint and they jump on the springboard, they push off the vault, and they go twisting and turning in the air, and it's incredible. That's something I do know. And I do know that when the vault is happening or any event is happening, everyone's focused on the gymnast. They're focused on the athlete. And the judges 
rank the gymnasts. The gymnasts receive the medals. The equipment doesn't receive the medal. You know, after the event, they don't bring out the medals and they say, like, all right, this was, you know, this was the best springboard because this person got perfect 10, so obviously it's the springboard, you know, that, that did it. And, oh, this springboard, mm, it didn't do quite as well today. No, they're ranking the, the gymnasts, and everyone's eyes is watching the gymnasts. And when we turn on to the Olympics, we're not staring at the springboard saying like, all right, oh, here we go, here we go. Oh, yes, they jumped. And then we start celebrating. And we turn our backs to the person twisting in the air. No, we're there to see how the athlete can utilize the springboard to do incredible feats of skill and strength. And scripture is like a springboard. Yes, we want to study the word, you know, in the same way that engineers analyze this, you know, the equipment for safety, efficiency, and consistency. We want to understand scripture. But the purpose of it is to point to Christ. It's to propel our hearts and minds towards Christ and see the incredible feats that he has accomplished. All of scripture is a witness to Jesus. That is its primary purpose. It testifies to our deep problem of sin, and it testifies to our endless need for a Savior outside of ourselves. However, it's, inc it's incredibly easy to misidentify our problem. It's easy to believe that our problem is, you know, that we just don't try hard enough, or we're just not quite good enough. And if we just tried a little harder, or we just, you know, could be a little bit better of a person, you know, then God would love us, you know, then we'd be all right. But our problem is that we're deeply broken beyond anything we can repair. And so we need someone to come and fix us, but we can't find anyone else to do it. No one can do it because everyone else is also broken. Everyone else is also selfish, prideful, lustful, greedy, self-serving. But Scripture promises that a Savior is coming and that a Savior has come. Jesus is the only one who can save. His perfect life and death on the cross paid off the debt of our sin, the debt of our rebellion against God. Our attempts to save ourselves are futile, but God has provided a way, one of hope and grace. The Pharisees and many people hearing Jesus' words rejected his message because it went against their understanding of God and themselves. They believed they loved God. I want to close with these words from Morris's commentary on this passage. He says, They make a profession of loving God, but in fact there is no real love. This is always the case where religion is basically self-willed. The Jews worked out their pattern of religion and tried to fit God into it. They did not first seek the way of God and then model their religious practices on it. They succumbed to the perennial temptation of religious people. Have you succumbed to the perennial temptation of religious people? Do you make a profession of loving God when in fact there is no real love? Is your religion self-willed? Have you worked out your pattern of religion and then tried to fit God into it? Or have you sought the way of God and then modeled your life on it?
Every week, we come to this table to remind ourselves of that way, to remind ourselves of the way of God, to remind ourselves and each other of the good news of Jesus, that God knows we can't save ourselves and has provided a way to salvation. And that way is to repent of our brokenness, sinfulness, rebellion, and to believe in Jesus, that he is the one that the Bible testifies to, that he is God, and that it is through his death we are saved, and through his resurrection that we can have new life. This meal is for those who believe in that good news, who believe in the gospel. If you don't believe, I... I invite you to, you know, walk up with us and observe what we do. Look at the crackers and the juice. But if you don't believe, please don't take any because these, this is a proclamation that we believe Jesus' body broken and blood spilled are what save us. That is the purpose of this table. So I invite everyone to please come up. And if you believe, receive the elements and bring them back to your seat.